Let's begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. And we'll, um, let's do the last three stanzas. We did the first three last, last week. Let's do the last three stanzas of um, From God the Father, Virgin Born. And Rebecca will start us off. Oh, Rebecca needs a hymn sheet to start us off. Though. Last three, abide with us. Abide with us, O Lord, we pray. The gloom of darkness chase away. Your work of healing, Lord, begin. And take away the stain of sin. Lord, once you came to earth's domain, and we believe shall come again. Be with us on the battlefield. From every harm your people shield. To you, O Lord, all glory be. For this your blessed epiphany To God whom all his hosts adore And Holy Spirit evermore Very good. All right. Let's uh, continue with the catechism memory work. All right, this is uh, from Table of Duties to Parents, and so going straight to the Bible memory work. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord, Ephesians 6, 4. Let us pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, and give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. And we'll go into Luther's morning prayer. I thank you, my heavenly Father, through Jesus Christ, your dear Son, that you have kept me this night from all harm and danger. And I pray that you would keep me this day also from sin and every evil, that all my doings in life may please you. For into your hands I commend myself, my body and soul in all things. Let your holy angel be with me, that the evil foe may have no power over me. Amen. The Almighty and merciful Lord, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, bless us and keep us. Amen. All right, kids can go up to Sunday school. Um, just a couple notes on the uh, hymn. And the Bible memory work. So I'll just point out in the hymn that fifth stanza. Lord, once you came to earth's domain and we believe shall come again. Be with us on the battlefield from every harm your people shield. Um, The uh, season of epiphany is about 
Christ revealing himself to us. And when he reveals himself to us, one of the things that he does is uh, show himself victorious, right? This is the part of the theology of the resurrection is that he's victorious over sin, death, and the devil. And as we're waiting for him to come again, um, I like that the language that this stanza uses that we're on the battlefield, right? We're, uh, we're on the winning side, right? The, the victory has been won, but we're still engaged in battle and warfare, right? Especially against the devil and temptation and sin as we struggle in this flesh. And um, I don't know why, but this stanza of this hymn has always uh, stuck out to me. Um, that we're, we pray in the revealing of Jesus Christ for him to reveal himself to be with us, to be our shield as we fight this battle. Um, be with us on the battlefield from every harm your people shield. And so uh, that's a great epiphany prayer. It's a great prayer all year round. And it, especially even kind of leading into Lent, right? We're going to go from epiphany into pre-Lent into Lent. And um, the first Sunday in Lent, about a month away now, uh, we'll get the reading of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, right? And that's Jesus fighting for us on the battlefield, right? So uh, it, the, the seasons kind of flow into one another, if you will. All right. Uh, any questions, comments on that? All right. The, uh, the thing I'll say about the catechism memory work um, slash Bible memory work to parents Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Um, another word for training there is discipline. And um, this is the balance of parenting, right? And and I think uh, everyone in this room has been parents, so um, you kind of know this. But I had a seminary professor who's given some kind of free parenting advice one class for some reason. But I found this to be very true. He said... Um, when you're a parent, the the problem is that you're always going to either under-discipline or over-discipline, right? Or at least it seems that way on this side of heaven, that when you under-discipline, you risk them uh, being misbehaved, you risk them breaking the fourth commandment, you risk them, um, you know, going down paths they shouldn't go down. If you over-discipline, you exasperate them and they resent you, right? And... Uh, the, there's always this this balance of those two things, right? And trying to strike that exact middle ground, which of course only our Father in Heaven does, right? Only He knows exactly how to discipline His children. But um, the good news is, as as time goes on, hopefully you get better at this. And um, you know, personally, obviously, I hope I get better at, at this striking this balance as time goes on. I'm um, having my own children, so. Um, but this verse is great, right, because it, it says both things, right? Do not exasperate them, but discipline and raise them up in the, the instruction of the Lord, right? And that's the goal, right? So it's helpful um, when you're thinking about kind of not exasperating but disciplining the the goal to have the end goal in mind, the target in mind, and then you can work back from there. What's the target? The target is the instruction of the Lord. Right. The target is that they're going to be faithful Christians. So what do we need to do to make that happen? All right. Um, any questions, comments on any of that? All right. Let's move on to Ezekiel. Uh, I'm excited about today. We have our final two major passages, key passages in Ezekiel. And it's actually not really just two passages. It's kind of the last two sections of the book, and it's really hard to split them up um, into any particular key, quote unquote, key passages. So let me tell you what they are. So the first uh, major section we'll look at as kind of a whole is 38 to 39, and then the last section of the book is 40 to 48. 38 to 49 is about this whole Gog. Sorry, my my hand was on autopilot. I meant to write Gog, and I wrote God, which I write much more often than Gog. Gog and Magog. 
And then 40 to 48 is about the new temple, or what's often called Ezekiel's temple, the temple vision, we'll say. Okay. And these two um, sections in Ezekiel are, uh, let's say, maybe the most controversial of Ezekiel, right? Like, so everyone loves the Valley of Dry Bones, right? Everybody uh, is interested, at least, I think, in the beginnings of Ezekiel whenever he has to lay on his side and for, for over a year and act out this punishment of the Lord on Israel. But when it comes to biblical scholarship and academia, these are maybe the two most controverted passages of, of Ezekiel. Um, and what, what do they mean? What's going on here? And um, also, uh, I think one of the reasons, especially with the first section, Gog and Magog, that that's the case is because it's referenced. Um, both sections are actually referenced in the book of Revelation. But the, the, if, you, if you were around in the 1980s, um, you may remember hearing about Gog and Magog from some of our premillennial dispensationalist friends, if you know what that word um, if you recall from any eschatology studies we've done, that Gog and Magog uh, was a prophecy about the Cold War. Does anyone remember hearing this? Okay, so um, there, there you go. Yeah, <laughs> Gary says I was there. Um, I disagree with that interpretation, and I'll tell you why as we get into it, but. Um, well, for one, it didn't come true, right? So, um, well, so people will say, you know, this is how things go. People make these big prophecies about the end of the world. And then when they don't come true, they'll say, oh, that's not what I really meant. Here's what I really meant. Now buy my new book, right? So um, that's how that's how these things go. But so let me... Um, <clears throat> I'm going to speak about these sections in general. I'll try and look at a few particular verses here and there. But um, we can kind of describe on on this 38 to 39, um, we can break this up into a couple different sections here. So um, 38, uh, let me check here, 1 through 13, um, basically four sections, two sections per each chapter. Uh, 14 through 23, and then 39, 1 through 16, and 39, uh, 17 through 29 are the kind of four sections here. And the first section is describing, I'm going to do that every time, Gog's uh, march on Israel. And then... uh, we have in the next section Gog's punishment from God. And then his ruin in the following section. And um, in the last section, we talk about the Ezekiel talks about how Gog's ruin uh, relates to the redemption of of Israel. Okay, so this outline can kind of help me just tell you what happens in these passages. So basically, that is that Ezekiel has this vision that this guy uh, or this this it, Gog and Magog are kind of sometimes pictured as as individuals, but um, also as lands, right? So we'll talk about who Gog is, but Gog is this warrior, I guess you could say, or this prince, um, to use Ezekiel's language, of the land of Magog. Okay, so Gog is the kind of warrior prince. Magog is the land. Um, and Gog marches and onto, and they're, they're this place from the north. And again, we'll talk about what this is. So Gog marches, the vision is this, is that Gog marches onto Israel um, to destroy them, but God 
punish instead uh, allows Israel to overcome and punishes God, right? And they bring him to ruin, and then um, God, God, not Gog, God uses this to to the redemption and sanctification of Israel. Okay, so if you take it into the wider context of the book of Ezekiel, the wider context of the book of Ezekiel is what the Babylonian captivity has occurred, right, at this point. Ezekiel is captive in the land of Babylon. The glory of the Lord has left the temple in Judah, in Jerusalem. And now um, they're waiting to return back to the temple. And they're looking for victory over their enemies, right? And this is what's pictured as kind of this um, and this fits right into the book of Revelation, which we'll talk about, uh, this kind of final battle um, in the book of Ezekiel, this final vision of this final ultimate battle between this great force of evil. Gog and Magog is this great force of evil. And Israel defeats this final enemy. And then what happens next in the book is the temple. They get to return to the temple and the glory of the Lord is there. Right, and it's this this magnificent spiritual temple that we'll discuss. Right, he describes the temple for eight chapters. That's how big of a deal it is. Okay, so um, actually, I guess that's technically nine chapters, right? Forty plus eight. So um, that's that's the basic outline of what happens in thirty eight and thirty nine. Okay, so what does this all mean? And and and. Where do we go from here? Okay, well, let's first of all talk about who Gog and Magog are. Gog and Magog clearly, um, if you if you look at like throughout the rest of the Old Testament, let me put it this way, we pretty much know who everyone is, right? So if you're talking about the Philistines, we know where Philistia was, we know who they are, right? If if you're talking about the the Canaanites, we know where the land of Canaan is, we know who they are. Gog and Magog seems basically completely made up, right? There's um, some records, and I'll say I'll tell you what they are in just a second, of things that might kind of match up with Gog and Magog, but this is very normal for Ezekiel, right? Remember Ezekiel's a little bit insane seeming. When Ezekiel has a vision, when Ezekiel prophesies, um, he will. Uh, describe things that are not normal, right? And do things that are not normal. Well, that seems to be what's going on here is that Ezekiel has this vision, and this is very simple, this is really apocalyptic, what, what, what would you, we should call apocalyptic literature. In other words, it's very similar to the book of Revelation, where what he's seeing is something that's happening, yes, in an earthly way, but it's happening on a very spiritual level and it should be interpreted somewhat metaphorically, right? It's not meant to be this uh, kind of historical prophecy, right? Where this is uh, something that's going to literally happen in this particular way, right? And um, Gog... Uh, and, and I'll show you some verses to, to help kind of back this up. But Gog seems to be this kind of made-up figure of evil. And Magog is kind of this made-up land of um, these kind of forces of evil from that are outside of Israel. Right? That it's kind of um, – it's very analogous to if someone were to say like um, the – if someone were to describe someone as kind of a picture of evil, right, and someone were to say, like, there's a new Stalin that's that's ravaging the country, right, or something like that, right? They're not literally talking about some reincarnation of Stalin, right? They're trying to describe a an idea of a wicked dictator, Right, that that's what's kind of going on here. Now, what um, is probably what what most commentators kind of think is the most likely place that Ezekiel is getting this image 
is there's a king in Lydia, which is um, ancient Asia Minor, named um, about 100 years before Ezekiel prophesies, named, uh, depending on who's pronouncing it, Gyges, G-Y-G-E-S, or this this one's even better, Gugu, G-U-G-U. Um, and, and he seems to be, a, based on the records we have from the ancient Near East, which is few and far between, um, this Lydian king seemed to be rather wicked, right? And so what Ezekiel might be doing here is kind of like I just said with like a new Stalin, is in this vision using um, a similar name to this known wicked king of somewhere that's kind of nearby, that but that was a hundred years ago, to describe... Um, this force of evil in this vision of this kind of final battle. Okay. All right. So, um, oh, and then Magog. Uh, Magog is actually, uh, an, there. there is a record of Magog in the Bible. And Magog is one of uh, Noah's descendants. Um, Japheth. Yeah, Japheth. One of Japheth's descendants. And um, uh, kind of of a line that becomes pagan. Right. And so, again, but that was thousands and thousands of years ago at this point. So um, it, it again becomes this kind of representational name of these northern pagans. Right. The uh, this the, these northern pagan hordes with this kind of wicked leader. Right. But there's really no evidence to suggest that these people actually existed. Right. So this is a again, a kind of apocalyptic vision and the fact that it's used in Revelation. So let me go ahead and jump to Revelation because this is kind of the final piece of the puzzle. So in um, Revelation 20, and I'll just go ahead and read you this part. What uh, Bible version are you using there? New King James? Yeah, New King James. Uh, Revelation 20, uh, verses 7 through 10. So this is uh, right after the thousand-year reign of Christ, which as um, amillennialists, we believe the thousand-year reign of Christ is happening right now. Uh, So that the thousand-year reign of Christ is this metaphor for the the reign of Christ in heaven at God's right hand, right, which we confess in the creed, right, Christ is reigning at God's right hand. So uh, we have the thousand-year reign, Christ is reigning in heaven, and then... This is to describe the end of the world, and then right after this, in Revelation 21, we're going to get the new heavens and new earth. So at the end of the world, when Jesus comes back again, there's going to be this final satanic rebellion that's going to be crushed. Okay, this is what's being described here in Revelation 20. And Gog and Magog is the language that it uses to describe this. So Revelation 20, verse 7. Now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. Right? And, um, man, there, there's so much here, but uh, you notice Satan's rebellion there tries to mimic the, the blessing given to Abraham. They went up uh, on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Okay, so Gog and Magog are called uh, Satan and his rebellion, right? And they're struck down in this final battle at the end of the age. And then and then Jesus comes and establishes the new heavens, new earth. Okay, so um, the, I always say uh, you can't understand Revelation unless you understand the prophets. Right, because they use the prophetic language to describe what happens in Revelation. And this is exactly one of those cases, right? We have to understand what Ezekiel is doing to understand what Revelation is doing, and kind of vice versa, right? We have to fit the puzzle pieces together. Um, so this is uh, my contention of what's happening here, is that this is an apocalyptic vision of Ezekiel. And the uh, here's one more piece to the puzzle, is that Ezekiel, in basically this entire last... Uh, major section of the book, starting even around chapter 36, is describing New Testament realities. Okay, and and this is very important. 
So if you remember going back to 36 and 37, um, what did we talk about in, in chapter 36? We talked about baptism, right? Jesus or God is going to take our heart of stone. He's going to wash us and make us clean and take our hearts of stone out and put in hearts of flesh. In chapter 37, what's he talking about? Resurrection, the valley of dry bones, right? And then in chapter 38, he describes this final battle against wickedness. And then in chapter 40, 40 through 48, he's describing this new temple. And we'll see when we go to the new temple that he's clearly not talking about the temple that is actually restored in Jerusalem at the return of captivity in history. It's a different temple. It's a new heavens and new earth temple. And so really, I, I think you can make the very, a very strong argument that um, 36 through 48 in Ezekiel is in one sense a New Testament book. Right? It's an Old Testament prophecy, but it's all about New Testament realities. It's very much not really about any particular history in the Old Testament. Right? There are parts of it that are fulfilled within Israel's history soon after. Um, like they do literally go back and, and restore a temple, right? Um, but it's really prophesying things that are going to happen in the time of Jesus. And I, um, so I'll, uh, uh, let me, and let me point out just two, two more verses there is, um, 38, uh, verse 22. And I will bring him to judgment with pestilence and bloodshed. I will rain down on him, on his troops and on the many peoples who are with him. Flooding rain, great hailstones, fire, and brimstone, which we already heard that in Revelation, of course, right? Fire from heaven came down and consumed Gog and Magog. But notice the, the part I want to point out to you. And on many peoples who are with him. This isn't just about one particular people. This is about all the hordes of evil in the entire earth, right? And then also um, 39, verse 6, very similarly um, and I will send fire on Magog and those who live in security in the coastlands, right? In the coastlands. That's very similar to the language revelation of the four corners of the earth, right? That this is about um, the wickedness throughout the whole earth. And um, the reason I'm being so intense about wanting to say this is not about particular um, fulfillments in history is because not only would it be a mistake, I think, to say, oh, this is about some literal place named Magog, which doesn't actually seem to exist in history, in Israel's history, but it's also a mistake to, to take this in, um, and this is kind of a whole other topic, but like I mentioned before, you the reason I'm spending time on this is because you'll hear people talk about Gog and Magog and and the rapture and this uh, this whole premillennial dispensational theology, which is pretty popular among um, Christians in the American South, unfortunately, talking about um, how the these prophecies apply to our uh, history in particular ways, which they really just don't, right? So again, um, kind of that Cold War thing, right? So uh, if you go back earlier into 38, um, whenever the Lord is describing Gog, it says, thus, thus the Lord God, behold, I am against you, O Gog, the prince of Rosh, uh, Meshesh, and Tubal, which I can talk about what those things probably actually are, um, you know, based on the Hebrew language. But um, people, in again, during the Cold War, the, especially the, the dispensationalists, they wanted to say, oh, Russia and Meshesh, that's, that's, that must be Russia and Moscow, right? And um, you just can't do that with the Bible, <laughs> okay? It, like, it, and when you think about it, it's a little bit silly, right? It's like, Let's just take these Hebrew words and then find English words from thousands of years later that kind of sound the same, and then we'll say that this is what the prophecy is about, right? Like, it's 
it's just not how the Bible works, right? The Bible fits together in its own way, um, not in whatever way you kind of want to make it fit together. So, okay. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think Ezekiel is incredibly vague and, and uses metaphorical language here to say uh, who these people are because he's trying to describe this uh, kind of final battle of evil, not um, any particular time. Now, I, I would I will say it is okay to say um, whenever we see battles between good and evil on earth, to say th- we can apply the passage to that, right? But not say that's the literal meaning of the passage, right? So you can always apply passages in, in certain ways um, and, and help yourself think about the world biblically, but it's also important that we're very clear about what the literal meaning of the text is as well, if that makes sense. Right? There's a, there's a kind of fine line there. Okay. Any questions on Gog and Magog? Is that all track? All right. So Let's, yeah. Magog is the name of a, a Jephthah. So if you, the only thing that you can really say about if, if you were trying to is that the, the, they went north. They basically became what? The Europeans? Yeah. Yeah, they became uh, yeah, kind of European pagans. Yeah. Indo-European mm-hmm. pagans. As far as we know, I mean, the the whole theories about like where different sons of Noah went, um, I think those are valid discussions. Um, I'm not sure how dogmatic we can be, but I think those are interesting discussions about like what, like how they filled the earth after after the flood. I just wonder if those prophecies are not only literally true, but also like generationally true. That we'll see, like even in our time right now, with the craziness going on in our generation right now, that that's not, you know, attack of, you know, Gog and Magog sowing discord. Yeah, that and that's kind of what I was saying like you can apply in some sense the prophecy um, to, to multiple times throughout history. I think ultimately it's about the final coming of Christ, but I think that's the literal meaning of the text. You can say, look, we can see Magog forces you know at work in our world today, right? That's fine. Um, but it, it's that balance of saying, you know, what's the literal meaning of the text ultimately versus what are some applications of the text, right? So, and we have to be very careful with applications too, right? That um, we're not, um, well, I almost said a not very nice Southern phrase to describe this, but... Um, <laughs> that we're not just kind of making stuff up or talking about things we don't know about, right? We need to be very careful that when we, when we apply it to real-life situations, we're, um, we're not blowing smoke is what I was going to say, but you can fill out the rest of that phrase. Um, all right, so that's, uh, that's Gog and Magog. All right, let's do the new temple. Yeah, we should have a little bit of time here. All right, so the new temple, again, um, I'm just going to describe kind of generally what what happens here. And I, I was going to um, print out some sheets, and I forgot, but um, if you have a study Bible at home or you can just Google this, um, there are – you can find diagrams that kind of draw out Ezekiel's temple – which is probably pretty helpful because it's hard to imagine when you're reading through eight chapters or nine chapters, excuse me, nine chapters of it, of what all this exactly kind of looked like. Now, 
I would say maybe don't get too artistic with it, um, but just like kind of a basic 2D like architectural drawing of what things looked like. I know in the Lutheran Study Bible, these are the ones I was going to print out, there's two different um, images, one about halfway through and one one at the end that shows kind of what has been described. But um, what is this new temple? Okay, so for basically what happens is for nine chapters, Ezekiel describes a new temple. But the way that it's described is that Ezekiel is taking a tour of it. Right? So it's kind of this fun uh, passage where he he's taken to this vision and uh, this man is leading him around this new temple. And let me say some just um, very broad things about the temple, right? And, and that will help guide you whenever you're uh, reading about it, right? So the first is that there is an emphasis on balance and symmetry and um, let's say equality, right? That... When you look at things like the altar or things like the length of the walls, right? So this is uh, the some of the things. A lot of what is being described in Ezekiel is these walls were are this many cubits long, and the altar is this many cubits wide and tall, and all this is that you'll find things that are very symmetrical and equal and balanced. Right? There's a lot of like squares and uh, very symmetrical designs to things, and I think that's important, um, and this is kind of one of the applications of it, is that this is a perfect temple, right? That's the, that's kind of what's trying to be um, uh, given here in this passage is that this temple is – it's beyond perfect, right? It's balanced in every way, right? It's not um, unequal. It's not unyoked. It's – not um, it, it, it's divine in this sense, right? It's not man-made, and because it's so equal in all the in every way, right? And then, kind of going along with that, um, you have multiples of ten are the most common numbers given in the temple vision. Multiples of ten, which again, this is kind of apocalyptic literature, right? If you go to Revelation, what do we have? We have multiples of ten. Right, so the 144,000 in heaven—that's 12 times 12 times a thousand. The thousand-year reign of Christ, right? The multiple of 10, 100 times uh, 10, right? So you you have multiples of 10 in the temple vision as well. So again, telling you it's apocalyptic literature. It is um, a divine goodness, right? Whenever you have multiples of 10 in the Bible, this is like perfection, completion, right? Uh, type of language, right? Numbers in the Bible always mean things. And then when when you don't have multiples of 10, often what you have is this kind of um, growth, right? So, um, or distinction in holiness, right? So when you don't have the multiples of 10, we'll, we'll say it this way, distinctions of holiness, Is for instance, um, this is the example I wrote down. Um, on the outer gate, there's seven steps um, going up the outer to the outer gate. There's eight steps going up to the inner gate, but then there's ten steps to get into the temple itself, right? So as you get closer to the temple, you have more and more holiness, right? More and more perfection, right? So this this kind of growth in holiness. Um, as you get closer to the temple, okay? So these are the things to kind of keep in mind, and and hopefully this is helpful there just because um, when you start reading temple, the temple vision, you're like, why does he spend nine chapters on this? <laughs> right? It's just, it's, it's kind of like reading certain things in Leviticus or Numbers or whatever where it's like, why are we talking about so many pomegranates in the temple? <laughs> like, um, that... This is trying to describe something divine, right? And I'll, I'll go ahead and make one application here is that um, whenever we 
come across anything having to do with worship or the temple in the Bible, no expenses spared, right? That the Lord takes very seriously the um, artwork, the beauty, the design of the place where his people are going to worship, right? Even when it's the tabernacle, even when it's the, the movable tent, right? He takes it very seriously and wants it to be done in a certain way. And um, there's this mistake that modern Christians make where we say, oh, well, we're in the New Testament now. Jesus is our temple. Um, and so the literal place that we worship doesn't matter as much. Now, I would definitely agree that that is true to an extent, right? That we do have freedom. And wherever two or three are gathered, uh, that there he is among them also. And that the veil has been torn, right? And so um, we can approach the altar with joy and with confidence, right? And you can read Hebrews about all of this. But it would also be a mistake to say that the literal place just doesn't matter anymore, right? Um, now, I also always kind of balance this whenever I make this point about any temple in the Old Testament and, and whatnot, is that if you look at the temple, um, for instance, that Solomon builds, it's not very large, right? Um, it's, I, I think we kind of compared it one time. It's probably about as big as our sanctuary is. Right, if you actually take the measurements. And that goes to show that it wasn't something that was um, impossible for man to, to build and maintain. Right? They did what they were able to, but they made it beautiful. Right? And so um, this is always my kind of contention about when we think about church buildings and how we treat our church buildings and whatnot. And um, if you know, say we build a church building one day, we should make it as beautiful as we can, right? And it matters because God thinks it matters, right? God cares about, like, we should give our best to him, right? And this is why we do the liturgy the way that we do it and stuff is because what's been passed down to us is a beautiful form of worship that takes seriously the beauty that um, should come with worshiping the Lord of Lords and the God of Gods, right? But we should also do it in a way that we're able to do it, right? Like we can't go and build some, you know, huge Gothic cathedral, right? At beautiful Savior in Olive Branch. We just can't do that. We don't have the money. We don't have the capacity. That's fine, right? But we should make it as beautiful as possible. All right, so anyway, um, that's first application when we read temple that any any temple vision really, um, not just Ezekiel's. But okay, now to back get back to Ezekiel's again, I I want to contend that this is apocalyptic literature and this is about the new heavens and the new earth, right? This is about the heavenly Jerusalem, and one of the ways that you can see that immediately is when you read this. This does not match what Israel actually did when they went back to Jerusalem, right? And there are things about it that are totally divine, right? So in within the vision, you go out late, later on in the vision, there's this river that's flowing out of the temple, and Ezekiel's wading through it, and it gets deeper and deeper. And um, it's this this river of living waters. That's I mean, it's a miracle, right? There's no um, hu human understanding of how we could have a river flowing through a church building, right? It just doesn't work. So this is, it's obviously a heavenly vision, right? Um, and if you go back to Revelation, right, we had Gog and Magog in Revelation 20. Well, in Revelation 21, what do we have? The new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem, right? So it, it matches right up with, with the, the end of the book of Revelation. Okay. Um, The next thing to note about, and we'll just after this we'll we'll get into a couple um, of the particular things about the temple, and that should take us to the end of class. Um, but a few more things to note here is that this is a complete reversal of the beginning of Ezekiel, 
right? What happened in the beginning of Ezekiel? They had to leave the temple and and remember what happened? The glory of the Lord uh, showed up at the Kabar Canal where Ezekiel was in Babylon because it had left the temple. And then in the middle of the book, Ezekiel gets the news. We talked about this last week that the temple had been destroyed, right? So throughout the book of Ezekiel, we have these warnings against Judah and this destruction of the temple and the leaving of the glory of the Lord. Now we get the complete reversal of that. The temple, there's this new temple and the glory of the Lord is back, right? We'll talk about that in chapter 43. But that's only, so this is my question on it. When they went back and then they built the, Second temple. The second temple. Yeah. Would that be the Herod temple? The Herodian? Yeah, well, it wasn't Herodian to begin with. But then, it yes, it became the the Herodian temple. So what I don't find in Scripture is that the glory of the Lord ever returns to that temple. Um, That first destruction of the temple, the glory of the Lord left it, and then they were pretty much on their own until Christ came. Well, you do have... um, I'm not sure about specific references to the glory of the Lord, but you do have uh, the prophets. Who are the two prophets that rebuild the temple? Um, Nehemiah. I was going to see, Nehemiah rebuilds the wall. And it's uh, Ezra, right? Ezra and Nehemiah. I I was kind of looking here to see. If in Ezra and Nehemiah, if there's any references to the glory of the Lord, I have to. Right. So this is about the return to captivity or return from captivity to Jerusalem. And Ezra, Ezra and Nehemiah rebuild the temple. Restoration of the temple begins. I mean, I wouldn't say the glory doesn't return because, I mean, they they sanctify the temple. Right, they pray that the temple's restored. Um, they pray over it, and um, the Passover celebrated. Right, um, there's certainly things that they're still sinners, right? So there's things that go wrong, but the rebuilding of the temple and the rebuilding of the wall are very significant. In Ezra and Nehemiah, and I, I would say that I, again, I, I'd have to look up specific references to the glory of the Lord. But um, to me, it seems that when they initially returned, it was a blessing. Um, now, did it remain a blessing? Obviously not. <laughs> Right. I mean, Jesus is pretty clear. He's very upset with the temple going ons, goings on, um, whenever he comes on the scene. Right. But there are a couple hundred years in between that as well. Right. But when they first go back to Jerusalem and restore the temple under the Persian Empire, they they are they are blessed. Right. So, for whatever that's worth. Um, but. The, the broader point, and maybe the point you're trying to make, is what I said here, which is that uh, this temple vision of Ezekiel is not about the second temple. It is about a heavenly temple, right? And now it's partly fulfilled in the second temple, but then the second temple gets destroyed anyway in 70 AD, right? So, um, and, and right, you know, recently with the stuff about Israel in the news, you, you of course, have probably heard some evangelicals and um, some various Jewish Jewish sects, um, which, I mean, it's a very complicated issue because a lot of the Jews themselves disagree about um, the case of this 
right? Sephardic Jews do not agree that they should have another temple in Israel, right? Where Ashkenazis do. So anyway, um, where you've, you've probably seen evangelicals and, and various Jewish sects talk about how there's going to be a third temple now, right? Back in Jerusalem, they're going to rebuild a third temple. They've even decided and, it's a different location than the dome. Right. That directly goes against the prophecies of Jesus, right? So um, anyway, that's a whole other issue. But, but, that, and this, but that's part of the point here is that Ezekiel, when Ezekiel describes the ultimate temple, he's describing something heavenly, right? He's describing something in the new heavens and the new earth. So, all right. Um, and if the other place you can compare this to, by the way, dang it, we're not going to finish this today. The other place you can compare this to um, we'll, we'll finish next week just going through a few particular passages and, and features of the temple. But if you read through it, you can compare it to Genesis 1 and 2, right? That this is a better Eden, right? And you can do that with Revelation as well, that one of the blessings of that God works through sin coming into the world and the redemption and sanctification of Jesus and Christ, Jesus Christ throughout history is that when the end of the age comes, it's better than the original, right? Uh, that that the final um, new heavens and new earth is actually a better creation than the first one, right? God outdoes himself. So uh, that's something you can see in Ezekiel's temple vision. But we'll look at um, about four or five different particular passages in the temple vision next week. So any final questions on that? Yeah, Gary. You know, it seems like, you know, that mankind is always trying to predict when Jesus is going to return. Which Jesus says, don't do that. I know, but they, they, they do that all the time. That's they do do that all the time, yeah. And I think that's, that's one of the things. That they take anything, like just a, just a minute thing, and say, like, well, this proves that, you know, my theory. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, I, uh... I was around, but not super old, during uh, the whole Y2K mm. thing. But um, I just heard some people talking about that recently, and everyone, you know, having watch parties for the end of the world at Y2K, and um, yeah, didn't happen. So that that always seems to happen every time someone makes a big prediction. Yeah, it's like the news. You know, the news. <laughs> Right. Right, right. All right. Let's uh, close in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us your word, um, especially today, these apocalyptic visions of uh, the end of the age. And we pray that you would keep us ready uh, for that time when Jesus would come back again and recreate the new heavens and the new earth and cast uh, Satan into hell forever. And we pray that you would allow us to be judged faithful on that day. And we pray that today, as we come to worship you in your temple on your Lord's Day, that you would bless the preaching of your word. Uh, let it be a fire, a refining fire uh, for those who hear it. Open the hearts and minds of all here. We pray this through your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Now, sending money to Israel for the purpose of funding the building.